All right. Wow, what an amazing time of worship. I don't know about you, but the Lord really ministered to my heart during that time. And it was funny, in preparing the sermon, I was tempted <laughs> to call Dan and say, Hey, you know, what, what about this song? What about that song? But, you know, it's just amazing how God put the perfect songs in our worship. He does that every week, doesn't he? Uh, we can just trust him fully to take care of that. Um, so I'm excited. Uh, we're, we're talking about Matthew 5, 5. We've been going through the, the Beatitudes, and uh, it might, might have been tempting for you to peek ahead <laughs> last week, but uh, we are at Matthew 5, 5, um, which simply says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, I just... Uh, we come to you and we ask you to open our eyes to the truth in your word. I pray that anything that I have been planning on saying that you don't want me to say, that you would just wipe it from my mind. I pray that um, we would clearly see what you have for us in this passage. We thank you that you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and that all we need is you. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. By the way, Cameron, thank you for that song choice. And all we need, all I need is you. Uh, that, was, that was great. So blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. When I was uh, 16 years old, roundabouts, my old beater car broke down, and I had to get to work. So I asked my dad if I could borrow his brand new Volkswagen Jetta, which at that time was a pretty cool car. <laughs> and I uh, had a Porsche Audi motor in it. I mean, this, this thing drove and handled very nicely. Five-speed, five-cylinder. Not too many of those left. Anyway, my dad's brand-new car, and I had to get to work. And so I asked him if I could borrow his car. And he said, yes, miraculously, graciously. <laughs> uh, I think to my mother, a little unbelievably. <laughs> he said, yes. As I was going out the door, headed off to work, with all of about a year's experience of driving under my belt, my dad said to me, now be careful driving out there. There's a little bit of snow that just came down this morning, like a little sprinkling of flurry uh, had come down just before I was about to leave. And I turned to him and I said, I know how to drive, Dad. I know what I'm doing. You don't have to tell me how to drive. In my heart, I was furious because I knew how to drive. I've been driving for a year. So I promptly, on the way to work, I promptly crashed that car into a telephone pole. And, uh, you know, my dad came, he picked me up, he was very gracious and loving uh, about the whole thing. But aren't we like that a lot of times in our hearts? <laughs> Don't we have the, this attitude towards God that, you know, I got this, God. I know what I'm doing, God. My ideas are better than yours, God. I have this under control. Aren't we like that? Isn't that where our sin takes us? You know, we, we want to be some kind of superhero type of a person. Well, my, uh, th- when my son Johnny was three, almost every day that I would come home from work, he would be dressed up as the Hulk. <laughs> you guys know the Hulk, the guy who turns green when he gets angry? He would be stomping around the house. He'd come up to me and say, I'm Hulk, Dad, I'm Hulk, Dad. You know, and his, his voice that prematurely turned low. <laughs> and, you know, he'd be running around saying, Hulk smash, Hulk smash, usually smashing things. But we all want to be superheroes. Don't we want to be a superhero? You know, the superhero 
saves the day. The superhero gets the glory. The superhero gets the girl. <laughs> That's who we want to be. And if we if we can't be the superhero, we, w- we at least want to look to superheroes. We make up human superheroes that we can look to. Maybe we can aspire to be like them. You know, this is pretty evident in the fact that the movie The Avengers has raked in over $8 billion dollars and ticket sales and merchandising. That's a lot of money that people have spent fantasizing about being a superhero. But, you know, that's what we want to be. And if we can't be a superhero, if we can't dream of that, we want to make someone else a superhero, whether it's a celebrity or an athlete or a famous business person or a politician. We will look under any rock <laughs> to find a superhero that maybe we, we can emulate. And that really, that, that's contrary to what God wants for us. As, as fallen, sinful people, though the last thing we want is anything that resembles meekness. <laughs> According to the world, meekness is weakness. And it has no superhero quality, no glamour, no glory, no throne for us to sit upon and, and reign from. The world says that we need to build ourselves up. That's because by, you know, according to the world's standing, the meek don't end, end up with anything, but to the victor goes the spoil. Have you heard of that saying, to the victor goes the spoil? Christ turns that whole notion on its head. You know, we have a, an industry in America, it's a self-help industry. That's over a $10 billion industry. And one of the foremost authors and speakers in that industry is Tony Robbins. Have you ever heard of Tony Robbins? And what, This is a quote from Tony Robbins. Now, Trust me, there's nothing wrong with psyching yourself up before you've got to run a marathon or something like that. All of that's good. But listen to this quote from Tony Robbins. He says, Put yourself in a state of mind where you say to yourself, Here's an opportunity for me to celebrate like never before my own power, my own ability to get myself to do whatever is necessary. Completely co- contradictory to what Christ is telling us here in Matthew 5. But there's really not much of an industry in the United States in, in meekness and <laughs> telling people they've got to become nothing <laughs> before God. You know, the philosopher Nietzsche, you've heard of Nietzsche. And what were the famous things that Nietzsche said? First, he said, God is dead. And then he promoted this idea that we need to um, honor and build up the superman within us all. Now, Nietzsche, Nietzsche was concerned that he looked out in the world and he saw these organized religions calling people to be doormats. And that's what he saw. He saw people living as doormats. Uh, He saw people living cowardly, uh, weak lives. And that is not what God has called us to as a disciple of Christ. That is not what Christ is saying here, uh, that meekness is. Because think of Moses, as we're going to look at in a little bit here. Moses was considered the most meek man of his day. God called him the most meek man. Moses was strong. He was courageous. He was a leader. He was authoritative. He spoke in front of enormous groups of people. But God called him meek. Because meekness really is the act of us becoming nothing before God. God is everything. We want glory, but in fact, biblical meekness is the act of delivering all that glory upward, as we just sang you know, in these songs. Um, it has nothing to do with our personal strength or weakness. Um, 
you know, Moses himself said to God, I'm not able to do this job in, in Numbers 11. He said, I can't do this. And that was a, a meek attitude as Moses was growing in his weakness. Uh, but we see in Exodus 2, Moses also fail, failed many times to trust in God. In Exodus 2, Moses killed an Egyptian taskmaster that was beating uh, a fellow Hebrew, probably nearly to death. And as a result, Moses had to go back to meekness school for 40 years in the desert. And, you know, what a change for Moses, being this mighty ruler in Egypt, a prince, to going to herding sheep. But God wanted Moses to understand that God was in control. God came then and spoke to Moses in the form of a burning bush. And uh, we can... We can see here that Moses was learning a little bit more about meekness in Exodus 3. When God said to Moses, Come, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, and you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now now think about that and maybe how your own response might have been at that time. Moses said, who am I that that I'm worthy of this? But myself, if I had spent 40 years in the wilderness all because there was an Egyptian guy beating to death one of my people, if I had had that harsh of a punishment and I was out there, I probably the entire 40 years would be waiting to see, when are we going to go get him, God? And when God God came and said, okay, I want you to go to... Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. I'd be like, yes, let's go get him. I want to see you squash Pharaoh. But Moses didn't have that attitude. Moses was, had more of an attitude of, you know, who, I'm not deserving of this task. I'm not able to accomplish this. And God knew that. And God used him anyway. Consider Jesus also in trying to defeat the world's view of meekness. Think of, think of Jesus. He challenged religious leaders constantly. He walked among people who were constantly trying to kill him. He, was, he had righteous anger when he saw the place of worship being exploited. Politicians considered him to be a public threat. But he willingly carried his own cross to his crucifixion, and he said of himself that he was meek. He referred to himself as meek. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest. He was called meek in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem when it says, your king comes to you meek. But you see, the world wants strong, powerful, conquering heroes. And that's why the world rejected a king born in a stable. They failed to see the truth that God does not require mighty vessels through which to dispense his might and authority. Rather, he chooses weak, broken and as Paul said, jars of clay. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 4. If you can turn there with me. 2 Corinthians 4 is a, is a perfect picture that Paul paints of how we are to remember our place, our position before Christ in meekness. So starting in verse 5, we're going to be five, uh, verses 5 through 7. 2 Corinthians 4. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God 
in the face of Jesus Christ. And here's where we really see our position. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And of course, a jar of clay, a clay pot of that day, we could, we could compare that to our styrofoam cup. Someone brings you, if you're thirsty, out mowing the lawn, playing a sports game, whatever it is, someone brings you a glass of water and a styrofoam cup, you don't care about the cup. <laughs> you care about the water that's in that cup. That's all we are. We're just vessels of life-giving water. So when we are in submission to God's authority as a vessel to do with as He pleases, when we acknowledge His sovereignty and our weak, insignificant position before Him, even the greatest trials and triumphs are not going to cause us to forget that. Because meekness is not weakness. Weakness is a lack of strength. When we are meek, we do not lack strength. We turn to God's strength. We have limitless strength through God available to us. But that is God's strength, and He is the one that is in control of that. By the way, meekness is also not self-loathing. Self-loathing is a kind of self-pity. And that all comes from pride. Meekness is also not cowardice. Cowardice comes from self-preservation, which is another form of pride. Don't be confused with what the world would have us think meekness is. Meekness is when God's power works in us with His control. It requires us to acknowledge that we belong to the One that is greater than us and that, in fact, we exist to give Him glory alone. And so this meekness will be persistent whether we are in triumph or in failure. If a meek person climbs an enormous mountain, when they get to the top, they are more impressed with the God who made that mountain than with their own ability to climb that mountain. And when a meek person fails or loses or becomes broken and lost, they are inwardly renewed because their strength comes from God and they only want God to get glory. And so there really is nothing more contrary to the world than the, the concept of meekness as it is taught in the Bible here. In fact, all of our sin nature really starts with the rejection of meekness. Think about Eve. <laughs> How did Eve sin? Why does she sin? Well, she sinned because she forgot her place before God. She rejected that. She wanted to be... Satan told her, you'll be like God. And she said, really? And that's what caused her to sin. She rejected that, that meekness. You know, before Adam and Eve sinned and they were in the right place, the right position before God, they had everything, didn't they? The entire world was theirs. When they forgot that, they lost everything. We're going to see how Moses would stumble in meekness in Numbers 20. Why don't you turn to Numbers 20 uh, and verses 8 through 12. This is good practice practice for those of you who are... uh, Sword drill champions. So we want to flip over to, to Numbers 20. We're going to look at verses 8 through 12. This is where Moses failed in his meekness. Because a lot of times I look to Moses and I think, I, I'm never going to be that way. Moses failed. In, in Numbers 20, starting in verses 8, God says to Moses, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock that before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And so Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. And then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock. 
with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. What a devastating punishment for Moses. But God takes this so seriously that we get out of the way and let God work. And when we put ourselves in the position of God as the judge or, or as any of his attributes, God will stop that. Think about Peter. When the, when the soldiers came to arrest Christ, Peter tried to stop the arrest. This is what Jesus said to him. Jesus said to Peter, Do you think I cannot call on my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? By the way, that's almost 80,000 soldiers. Or 80,000 angels. So Jesus was like saying to Peter, Seriously? You don't think we can handle this? You don't think I can handle this as God? But see, Peter forgot that God who created the universe by speaking it into his existence knows everything that would ever happen. He is all-powerful and he doesn't need our help. It's so tempting. Even when we do ministry, even when we preach, it's so tempting to think that God needs us and that we're going to do this on our own strength. And he doesn't. He demands a meek spirit that is in submission to him. When his children, as we are seeing here, when his children stray from that, he will be faithful to correct that. And so, in the the second half of that passage, it says the meek will inherit the earth. All of our value. One of my kids said to me, does that mean we're going to be rich, Dad? (laughs) No. This is a promise, a future promise. But really, right now, even if we have no money, we are rich in who we are in Christ, in our submission to our Creator. Samuel Brengel said, and uh, he was a, a famous old-time preacher, he said, the axe cannot boast of the trees it has cut down. <laughs> it could be nothing but for the woodsman. He made it. He sharpened it. He uses it. The moment the woodsman throws the axe aside, it becomes only old iron. Oh, that I may never lose sight of this. You know, we put value in the wrong places. We value the small little things that we accomplish on our own might. We want to build glory for ourselves. We want to build an ivory tower and sit upon it and reign from our own self-made throne. You know, people love to own something that was owned by someone famous. Some people have said that the fastest way for something to achieve value or to raise in value is for someone famous to touch it or do something with it. Consider this. John Lennon and Yoko Ono wrote on a piece of paper with a magic marker, they scribbled it, the words peace and bed. That paper recently sold for $150,000. Babe Ruth's jersey. I promised Tim I would put a a baseball uh, thing in here. Babe Ruth's jersey sold for $4.4 million. That's like a $5 shirt. All because he wore it and it was his. And it's only through the value of the owner that these simple things achieved any worth. On their own, worth nothing. And it's the same with us. 
Our only true value, our only richness comes through being used by God and being owned by God. The Greek word praeus in Matthew 5, 5 that we have translated to meek, or in some of you, if you're using the American Standard, it says gentle. That Greek word would have been used at that time to describe a horse that was broken in or that was obedient to its master. What good is a horse that isn't meek or that isn't broken in? It's of no good. Strong's Concordance says of this word praeus, it says that this refers to exercising God's strength under His control or demonstrating power without undue harshness. It's, it's God's strength under His control that he, that he makes available to us. So meekness is when we understand our position before an omnipotent God. Meekness arises out of our realizing our complete lostness, which was the first beatitude, poor in spirit, and our need for His grace when we mourn and repent of our sin, a second beatitude. This is a posture of submission before God. Now, possibly no one exhibited this better than the prophet Isaiah. I'm going to read for you in Isaiah 6, verses 4 and 5. Now, Isaiah had a vision. He saw God in His temple. We sing the song, Holy, Holy, Holy. That's, that's where that song comes from. He saw God in His temple, the angels singing to Him. And he was overwhelmed by the emotions and the truth that is really in these first three Beatitudes. Moses, or, or Isaiah said in verse 5, And I said, Woe is me! He was broken in the spirit. He said, For I am lost... I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. He mourned and repented his sin. And next he says, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's recognizing who God was in his place and who he was, little Isaiah, in front of him. And that should be something that impacts us greatly, just as it did Isaiah. He fell on his face and worshiped God. He saw God, responded with meekness. And as you'll see later in that chapter, a God then used him. And we struggle with that every day, though. We want to be great. We want to be the one. You know the kid in class, in school, who always was raising her hand in the back? Call on me, call on me. Not only did they know the answer... They wanted the teacher to know that they knew the answer. They wanted everyone in the class to know that they knew the answer. They wanted that glory. They wanted to be great. In our sin, we want the glory. We want to be great. Whatever it is that we've accomplished, we want to wear it on our T-shirts, put it on our hats, put it on our, on our car, do whatever we want to do. We want to let the world know what we've accomplished. And this is a, a, a great sin. Think of in Numbers 12... Go ahead and turn to Numbers 12. You're already at Numbers 20. It's just a couple chapters before there. Numbers 12. Again, back to Moses. His cohorts, Miriam and Aaron, started to get jealous that God was leading, leading the people through Moses and not them. They started to get jealous of Moses' position of authority and how much God was using him. And so in Numbers 12, starting verses 1 through 9, this is how it goes. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman who he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Basically, they're gossiping among themselves, talking down about... You ever get tempted to be in that situation about somebody? And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has He not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. 
Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out here, you three, to the tent of the meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision or I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them and he departed. You see, Miriam and Aaron were prideful jealous of Moses, forgot God's place, forgot that we're just all styrofoam cups <laughs> to be used by God. They forgot that. And they wanted glory. They wanted to be the ones who were you. They were saying, what about me, God? And that's how we're, we respond when we think we can accomplish God's work on our own strength. When Tara and I were first married, I worked at a stone quarry. <laughs> Not a very glamorous job. I was a groundsman. There were these enormous trucks at the stone quarry that, just to give you an idea, the tires on these trucks are taller, higher than most Big Mac trucks, most tractor trailers that you see in the high. The tires on these trucks, they could carry 200 to 400, pound, or 400 tons. They carried boulders in them that were the size of most pickup trucks. Now, when I, when I first saw one of these trucks, it rumbled past me, scared me, scared me to death, and went and parked over in another area. I remember thinking to myself, imagining the driver in that truck. In my mind, I'm picturing someone. You know who The Rock is? The actor, The Rock, the wrestler guy, enormous, strong guy. That's who I'm picturing in my mind. This enormous, burly guy to come you know, out of that truck. You can imagine how surprised I was when this little like, 120-pound guy climbed down the two-story ladder that was bolted to the front of that truck. I saw him on the ground. I'm thinking, that's not what I expected to come out of that truck. But, you know, it doesn't, that, it doesn't matter how strong the man or woman is who's driving that truck. It's still able to carry 200 to 400 tons. Wouldn't it be ridiculous if the driver of that truck started to, you know, kiss their muscles and think, man, I can pick up 200 tons? It would be equally ridiculous if the driver, when asked to go get the load of stone, would say, I'm not strong enough to do that. It would just be ridiculous. And that's how we are before God many times. But the meek are not impressed or impressed with themselves or insecure about themselves. They're too busy being impressed with God. While they work hard as unto the Lord, the meekness in them will cause them to have faith in their ability, not, not faith in their ability, but faith in God's ability. The meek do not judge because they realize God is the judge. The meek do not seek revenge because they realize that God has declared that vengeance belongs to him. The meek are not jealous of power because they realize that God has placed those in authority over them. They do not rebel against that authority. In fact, the meek do not even consider their own strength, talent, wisdom, experience, as anything in front of God's ability. Someone exemplified this uh, recently. There was a, a dear young woman in our community, many of you knew her, who, who recognized God's sovereignty and his authority in a way that many of us will struggle to do in our lives. When this woman found out that she was pregnant, she and her husband rejoiced. 
What a joy to have a second child in their family. Not long after the discovery of their pregnancy, there was another discovery, and the doctors had the unfortunate task of coming to her and and telling her that they had discovered cancer. It would be okay. There was good news. The cancer could be treated. This is what the doctors were explaining to her. But there was one thing. The baby could not survive the treatment. Now, this young woman's response, I believe, was probably frustrating to the doctors, maybe even frustrating to a lot of us, um, because this is what she said. She said, when God decided to give us this baby, he already knew I would be getting this cancer. How can I question God's authority? She denied the treatment, and it wasn't long until she gave birth to that baby. It wasn't long until after that that she succumbed to that cancer. You know, her testimony of faith in giant obstacles has, has been a witness to many of us and continues to be. God continues to use that. But she was completely submitted to the will of God. By the world's standards, she lost everything. But by biblical standards, she had everything. You see, submitting to God's authority will bring great peace and comfort to your life. Now, many of you are facing giants right now. I talk to you. Some of you are struggling with difficult people in your life, either at work or in your family. Some of you are struggling financially and wondering how the Lord is going to provide. Some of you are struggling with sin and addiction and don't know how you're going to overcome that. Some of you are struggling with tremendous illness and have no idea how God is going to work this out. The temptation in these times is to be consumed with this question and to tell or ask ourselves this. How am I going to work this out? We even pray sometimes and we pray to God. How am I going to do this, God? The position God really wants us to take is, God, I can't wait to see how you work this out. Think of David. David had no encouragement from his friends and family. In fact, he had the opposite, ridicule. But he faced Goliath. When he faced Goliath, he wasn't even strong enough to to wear the armor. He brought absolutely nothing to the table, yet he went and faced Goliath in battle, putting his life completely in God's hands. We see that God was faithful in that that, um, instance. But remember, Scripture is designed to reveal God to us. So the story of David, it isn't about David. It isn't about Goliath. It's about God. God gave us that account in Scripture so that we could see that example and say, that's my God. That's where my strength, if I have any strength, that's where it comes from. And God is in control of that strength. He wants us to be faithful to Him in that way. God doesn't call us to be giants. He, doesn't, he calls us to be 100% available to Him and in submission to Him. He wants us in our weakness to put our faith and confidence in His strength, not our own. He calls us in broken spirits and in full repentance to acknowledge that He is a sovereign God and we are His. The more meekness is a part of your heart, the more you'll realize how much you need God and how much He wants you. Consider this quote from Francis Chan, and many of you have heard this quote. From Francis Chan's uh, book, Crazy Love, he says, The irony is that while God doesn't need us, but still wants us, we desperately need God and don't really want Him most of the time. 
And see, as God's children, we need to realize, just as Isaiah did, that on our own, apart from our Creator, and outside of being bought with a price by the blood of Christ, we're nothing, we are worth nothing, and we have nothing. However, when we submit to God's authority, we see it is only through His grace that we can become something and have everything. And when that happens, we will hunger and thirst for righteousness. We will be merciful. We will be pure, non-contentious. In fact, we will give our lives and beings to Him fully. It's a position that we need to take. You know, you're familiar with positions on the baseball field, positions on stage, positions at work. Our position before God is that He is everything, we are nothing. But in His grace, He still calls us to serve. In His grace, He cares for us. And by His grace, His children will inherit everything. So I challenge you. Are you remembering your position before God? Let's pray. Dear God, we, we thank You and we praise You that we do not need to trust and rely on ourselves, on our own strength, on our own wisdom, our intellect. We thank You that You love us so much that not only did You send Your Son to die for us, but You're so gracious to allow us to be involved in Your ministry and our life here on this earth. I pray that You will help us see You as You are and that our only strength comes from You. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.